This is a Willits Point Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willits Point Shea Stadium. It is the Subway to Shea podcast. Anthony Rivera here with you talking about all the news and happenings surrounding that team from Queens, the New York Mets episode 101 live from the uh, Subway to Shea studios in my office. I got big thanks to Dexter Henry of SNY, New York Post Sports, WFAN and CBS Sports Radio for being part of episode 100 last week. We'll have him on again at some point during the season. But now on to episode 101, and I have to welcome in today's guest, and that is Will Salmon, covers the New York Mets for The Athletic. Will, how are you doing today, my friend? Hey, Anthony. Good to be on with you. Doing well here. Well, we got to take a look at the biggest storylines from this week, basically the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Mets to start the 2023 season. And we got some big news coming in on this very day. Uh, Francisco Alvarez coming to New York. Uh, the Mets announced that Omar Devias underwent imaging this morning and it revealed that he had a medium to high grade uh, strain in his left calf. He will be placed on the injured list for about eight to nine weeks. So I'm, I'm assuming that's about like three months for him. Uh, you even mentioned you expect Francisco Alvarez to be called up. They haven't really made it official. I haven't seen it on, on Twitter from the Mets or on the website just yet. But do you expect him to be called over Michael Perez, who's not on the 40-man uh, roster? Uh, could Alvarez find his way on this team for good if he gets this opportunity right here? That's a great question. Uh, that's something that he'll have to maybe prove a case for. Look, if they're bringing him up now, it suggests that they're comfortable with him uh, defensively, probably, because, look, Omar Narvaez is going to be out for several weeks, uh, perhaps as long as eight. That's the estimated timetable from the Mets based on people who have had that injury in the past. So we'll see. Uh, it could be longer. It could be shorter than that. But it's around two months, right? Because that's what it comes out to. And so you're going to Alvarez here where you, know, you could you had another option, right? Like you could have gone to Perez. You could have placed somebody on the 60-man uh, IL and then have an opening on your 40-man to put uh, Perez there. But instead, they opted to go with Alvarez, who was already sitting there on their 40-man roster. And so for me, that tells you like, okay, um, they feel okay about what they saw defensively from, from him to put him in this spot. Now, from there, it's going to be up to Alvarez to see what he can do because uh, obviously the Mets, they went out and they signed Omar Narvaez, uh, basically gave him a two-year guarantee. And they also then uh, bought out uh, some of Tomas Nito's arbitration years as well. So they kind of gave, gave themselves a little bit of a cushion in case Alvarez was not ready for, for this year or perhaps as early as next year either. Um, but 
lo and behold, here he is, and um, he has the bat that's probably ready for the major leagues at this point. But you know, defensively, there's some questions on you know what he can do uh, consistently at this level, and we'll see. Like I think that in a perfect world, like I mentioned, they signed those catchers for a reason. They they had those catchers for a reason, and then and in a perfect world, like you have Alvarez get more seasoning at AAA at catcher, but that's not what happened, obviously. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what this means for him long term, but he has an opportunity here at the very least. Would you say you? Th- think that maybe Tomas Nito would split time with Alvarez or Alvarez will get the bulk of this time considering what we've known and what we've heard from the Mets already yeah it depends I think that with Alvarez they're not going to break him up to have him sit on the bench uh that doesn't make any that doesn't make too much sense when you have a kid that needs a lot of reps and needs to get better and um, needs to get comfortable there as well and he's going to be if he's going to be who they think he is he needs time with these pitchers anyway um and so it's you know it's kind of one of those things where uh, other teams in similar situations have turned to their prospects and it's like you got to sink or swim right and this is it so we'll see Um, it's kind of hard to make that call now Uh, I think my guess would be that they probably just go 50-50 for now um, and just to see like what they have with Alvarez not to overwhelm him either um, at this level so I'm just guessing with that. So that's just my pure speculation. And also with the idea that, you know, Tomas Nino is a very gifted defender. Um, certainly he he's not going to uh, be a threat in the lineup a lot of the time for you. But defensively, there's few who, who could bring what he could bring to the table defensively. So it's not as if like they're, you know, going to be in a situation where they're leaning on somebody who they don't want to lean on with Nito. They, they turned to him when they had to last year and they were prepared to do the same here. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it remains to be seen. And again, a lot of it kind of depends on how Alvarez responds to this opportunity. This is obviously a kind of a, I guess a good situation for the Mets to have considering, you know, the Mets fans have been clamoring for Francisco Alvarez to be called up for a while now. Obviously he got that little spurt at the end of the season, but you know, now he's getting this big opportunity opportunity for a long extended time if he plays well if he hits well most likely he'll stay with the team but then you also still have Omar Nevarez uh with you know backup duties and like you mentioned Tomas Nito who has signed the uh, the contract so could they carry would you think to carry three catchers in the future I I, I don't know if that's possible well sure yeah it's possible uh, because you have the dh as well and so you could kind of weave alvarez into those at bats if that's the scenario that kind of plays out right where he's like this you know phenom who comes to life and is everything every mets fan wants right like then sure you find a way to keep that guy in your lineup and hey this is a team that could use some uh some pop from the dh spot and so that would almost solve another issue there and you still have that righty lefty situation with Nervaez. and then hey down the road they have options. I mean, they, they catchers who are gifted defenders are players that other teams want. That is my at least understanding of it, right? Like mm-hmm. those guys, they're valuable commodities. And so when you have somebody like a, even like Tom, Tomas Nito being at a fixed price, um, not not looking at arbitration years where you're guessing, he's at a rate where these teams know what he costs. That could be attractive in the trade market down the road. I don't know um, if that's going to be the case or if that's the way it plays out who knows right but that's just an idea uh for down the road of how it could play out in a uh fantasy way where alvarez just takes the team by storm and and does what he has to do to to claim a spot um that makes them makes for for some hard decisions or, or makes it interesting at the very least but yeah i think that with his power and his bat 
uh, at the very least, it, it definitely could be a situation where they weave him into DHFS down the road uh, while also getting him to catch and continue to develop that way. Francisco uh, Alvarez was the last person I thought that was going to be the first one. Uh, but obviously, because of injuries, things have changed. A lot of Mets fans have been wanting Brett Beatty to come up here. And with the struggles of Eduardo Escobar, you know, it's not the start any of us was hoping for, especially Eduardo. I know this is frustrating for him as well. You know, all the questions that have to have been answered during spring training and seeing how well Brett Beatty was playing during spring training. And now, you know, Escobar's batting 100. He's two for 20 uh, to start this season. Bat looks very slow. Beatty starting off already batting 400. He's got two home runs, five. Five RBIs, two stolen bases. He avoided serious injury the other day. Has only uh, right uh, that right thumb inflammation, so he, he should be fine in the day to day. I was thinking with Escobar that they would give him at least till the end of April to kind of figure things out. But if he continued to not hit over the next week or so, that maybe they would call uh, Brett Beatty up. How much time do you give Eduardo Escobar? I think it's one of those arbitrary things where you know when you see it that it's either working or it's not. Um, whether that's two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, I'm not sure because it could ebb and flow, right? Where one day he has a good day, the next day he has a bad day, so on and so forth, especially now, right? Where things are so magnified because it's so early and we see it all the time, right? A guy goes four for four, all of a sudden he's hitting 400 on the season. It's a totally different conversation and that, that's what happens, right? It goes it goes quick. It, it could change fast, right? So um, I think you're right with the idea that, hey, we're just wrapping up one week here in Major League Baseball. And we're on the uh, beginning of the second week, basically. So I think it's too early there, right? It's like you're not going to pull the plug on it after four or five handful of games, uh, seven games, whatever it is. Same time, his struggles are real. Like they've already benched him twice um, against you know pretty decent pitchers, but nobody like all you know the best pitchers in the world here. Uh, I guess Corbin Burns would qualify as one of those. But what I'm getting at is that you're not really benching this guy because of a, a matchup. You're benching him because of his struggles. And if you're turning to Luis Fiorme already uh, because he supplies that defensive value, um, then that for me already tells us like what what we are, what we know or what we should how we should think about this situation. Um, and it, it kind of informs our opinion a little bit on the way they're thinking because they already are turning to Luis Guillaume. And sure, he needs his at-bats. He needs some time to get going, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is that Eduardo Escobar is supposed to be your third baseman. And if he's not starting in games against right-handed pitchers, um, that raises some questions already about how long this will take. So I think it's kind of twofold where we have to monitor Brett Beatty, his, first his health and his production. And then we have to monitor the at-bats from Escobar because, you know, even when he got that hit the other day um, against the Brewers, it was on that pitch that was pretty much at the ground. Um, and he kind of golfed it out uh, for the single. So, you know, the at-bats have to be better uh, from him. He has to produce in order to continue on that role because there's no denying that Brett Beatty looks like a, you know, a future everyday player at the major league level. I've been looking back at the stats for Escobar in past years, and he He's a notoriously slow, you know, starter, uh, especially the last year we saw, but back in 2021 and, and so on, it just, it just so happens that, you know, Brett Beatty is on the heels of being that guy to call up. So the, I guess, struggles are like intensifying for him. And I mean, he's, I gotta say he's, you know, taking it like a champ. I mean, he, he's 
had welcomed the fact that Brett Beatty may at some point, you know, take his spot there. But I would hope that Eduardo would still be a part of this team in some sort of maybe DH fashion or some way that they can just get him going because we saw in September how important his offense was when he kind of carried the team throughout September. Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up, uh, just about the idea that, hey, what happens when there's a veteran who is a slow starter, just generally speaking, and he has a prospect creeping up on him? That's a great question. Um, that definitely is something to weigh uh, when you're looking at that, at that decision. As far as Escobar, you also raise a good point in just his value, um, perhaps as a, a part-time player. And, and maybe that's maybe that's what he is at this point. We'll see. Uh, but even if he is that, I, I do agree with you on the notion that he could still provide some value because he has some versatility as well. Um, he could play a little bit of second base. He could also play a little bit of first base um, in a backup uh, capacity. So um, that's a few positions right there on the infield. Sure, they all they already have Guillaume, but you know Escobar is a switch hitter, um, somebody who could provide a little bit of power um, from the bench. That's not the worst thing. It makes your team better if you have both. Um, that's kind of what a lot of fans mentioned to me when they were flirting with the Carlos Correa situation, where why is it an automatic to trade Escobar? Like, why not just have him on the bench? Why not have him in a DH role? Um, and it, it raises a good point, right? Because I think your team is better the more depth you have. And he's, he could be a quality player once he gets going. He's, he's proved that year in, year out. Um, with his age, with the season that he had coming off last year, um, it is trending in a situation where uh, you have to give that a long look and, and see like whether it's uh, a career trend that we're looking at where it's just this is how it always rolls for him. Or is this a sign that, hey, maybe this is time to um, you know maneuver a little bit and to slide him into a different role? Well, immense offense just entirely has been pretty much struggling. I'm going to try to bring this uh, screen up if I can here, uh, taking this from uh, StatMuse here, and you can see just the struggles from this offense. You know, Pete Alonso, he's got three home runs, six RBI. It's kind of the most of the offense, but he has been you know struggling average-wise. Uh, Mark Canna has been struggling outside of his great game. Francisco Lindor and, and Lindor and Alonso are pretty much, especially last year, those are the guys you were counting on with to get the big hits and the RBIs. And when they're not playing well, you know, you definitely know the entire team is struggling. Jeff McNeil is getting his hits. Uh, Brandon Nimmo struggling a little bit off the top. Starling Marte, who I thought even if they didn't bring a bat in, that the addition of Starling Marte, because he struggled, uh, I mean, the team struggled without him in September. And I thought that, you know what, maybe bringing in another back, although I would love to have another bat and uh, definitely another power hitter, that maybe overlooking the fact that not having Marte kind of hurt this offense, you know, in the end of September, but it, it still te- it seems to be struggling. Um, we already talked about Eduardo Escobar. Omar Navias was kind of a nice little a bat for the couple of games that he was playing in, especially when we saw how much that James McCann was struggling. Uh, Tommy Pham, he had a really good game. Uh, I really like to see a lot more from Daniel Vogel back. He's, he's not the kind of DH I thought he would be. I don't know if what your thoughts are on Daniel Vogel. When I think of a DH, obviously, you know, there's the Nelson Cruz's of the world, obviously David Ortiz and what he did, JD Martinez. I don't know if, if Daniel Vogelback provides that power and that, you know, cause I know he takes a lot of walks. I, I don't know. I just don't know with Dan. What are your thoughts on with Daniel Vogelback? Yeah. I don't think the Mets ever really expected him to provide a whole lot of 
power there. I think when they acquired him, they were looking at his OPS and they were looking at the idea that this is somebody that should help us in that role and and provides um, basically a lot of what they already had. He basically fit into their culture of somebody who sees a lot of pitches, um, has a good idea of the strike zone. Uh, not a whole lot of like swing and miss there. He gets on base via the walk. Um, you know, just he's that kind of player. He's not somebody that's going to. Uh, he had the one season with the Mariners where he um, he did have that that large home run total, but he really hasn't been that guy his whole career. And you know, a lot of people um, see his game, but uh, they they look and they see they they want to see a power hitter there. And like, sure, he has power, but he's more of a a guy who uses the entire field more than people think. Like he could go the other way. He can go up the middle. Um, sure, he gets. He, he used to face those extreme shifts a lot, but you know we saw him beat those shifts a lot of times, flicking it the other way and just going with the pitch where it's pitched. Um, so he, he is that type of hitter. So you know it's it's interesting when you look at it because you have to ask the Mets like when you look at his OPS and you see that most of it's coming via on base. It's not coming from slug. And so like is that a concern there? And is that something that you have to override or fix? Um, I'm not sure. For me, if it was my lineup, yes. But um, I'm not sure if that's in the cards. I think that they look at their his OPS and they see somebody who, who does produce against right-handed pitchers. And they look for that foil against lefties. And that perhaps it could be Tommy Pham. Perhaps it could be somebody else. Perhaps it's a mixture of other people. But certainly they need more production out of that spot um, consistently, regardless, um, as they need more production out of third base and catcher as well. I think when you have those three uh, spots that are not performing, uh, like we saw last year, it puts a lot of pressure, like you were suggesting, on the idea that Lindor and Alonzo have to show up pretty much every day and produce. And a lot of times they do. They do just that, right? Um, that's why they're stars in the game. But it does add to that pressure um, when you have uh, three, sometimes four spots in that lineup um, that are just not producing at a, at a solid level for you. Well, let's consider, you know, the circumstances that the Mets are in right now, not going to make any trades at this moment in time. Obviously, it's super early, and I don't like to – I, I've seen a lot of it on on Twitter, the frustrations, and and it's still we're only seven games in. Uh, I, I do feel like this offense is going to turn it around. How should they do that from within? How would you manage this offense to get them back on track? A certain lineup setup. How would you get these guys going? I think we'll see first, like what Alvarez could bring. Um, perhaps he could help there. And for just from covering the offseason, I know that the way that this team is constructed, they looked at their overall system and they said to themselves, like, okay, we have a pretty solid lineup as constructed. And if we do get improvements, unlike pitching, they do not have pitchers at the next at the high levels who are uh, very much ready to contribute in a major way. Yes, there's Peterson and McGill um, outside of that. Uh, what I'm saying is that they're just not like a flashy prospect that's there quite yet, right? Whereas if you look at the position players, there are those guys that fit that description. And so for me, right now, it would have to be those the younger players in AAA, Vientos, Beatty, Alvarez. Um, if you're looking for something to change, it would probably come from within and it would probably come there. Uh, because trades at this point, whether it's April, May, even June, they're they're very rare for that to happen. Um, where they where they're major league players getting moved at that time, sure it can happen. Sure conversations happen at that time, but it just the reality is that the execution will probably won't be there. So if you're looking for some kind of change, um, while they evaluate what goes on, it will probably come from within. It would probably be a Beatty call up. It would probably be you know giving Vientos more of a run. 
And, and right now we're going to see what happens with Alvarez. And so, like you mentioned earlier about being surprised, you know, that's not how I would have wagered. Uh, if you were to ask me uh, at the beginning of the season, which one of these three would call, be called up first, but that's the way it's worked out. And so he'll get the first opportunity and he's the first one of those position players with some offensive upside to see if he can make a difference. <laughs> Once again, I'm here with Will Salmon of The Athletic. Will, I want to switch on over to the pitching staff because as much as a concern that there is around the offense, I do feel that there's a legitimate concern around this pitching staff, especially the rotation. Uh, The injuries, obviously, to take out Verlander and Quintana right even before the season begins. We know Quintana's out indefinitely. Verlander underwent the uh, follow-up imaging, and the inflammation has reduced, but there is no update on when he'll return just yet max scherzer started off well during opening day struggled in the sixth inning which tied up the game he also struggled in the sixth inning of this game and he's aired his frustrations about the pitch clock and how fast it's kind of making him work uh it seemed like it would work for him in the beginning when he was testing things out but as we're seeing uh fans seem to think and i've seen this a lot on twitter that the rapid pace uh is starting to affect the stamina of the starting pitchers. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Yeah, I heard about that as way back in the last year that that would be the case. Actually, I had a lot of smart people in baseball reach out or have conversations with me about that. That's a real thing. And what to me is most interesting is sometimes like when you're living in like the 92, 93 range, and then you suddenly drop to 90, 91. Um, not only is there the physical concern about that where like, okay, like you're just not at the energy level or you're just not at your best. Well, that also affects you mentally, right? Like if if you think about it, if you're on the mound and all of a sudden like you have this um you have this pitch that you think is is what it is it's no longer that right it's a little bit less than that so now mentally you have to deal with the idea that okay now my stuff isn't at its best what do i go to and that may present a whole nother issue um with so it's not just the physical aspect of it i think it also can impact guys mentally and they maybe i don't want to say second guess themselves or anything like that but maybe it affects the decision making too uh maybe it affects the psyche a little bit i don't know I, i'd have to ask more questions on that um but yeah I, I think it's a real thing i don't think it's like it's it's not what people want to hear because it sounds like excuse making and um i think you could cite it as a reason without leaning on it as like this is why it happened it could be one of the reasons why um but it also uh, just the idea of uh Max Scherzer struggling and Justin Verlander being unavailable just points to um, or reveals just how the roster is constructed, where sometimes when you pick guys that are on the older side of things, regression is a concern. Uh, Injury is a concern. This is kind of the trade-off when um, you're dealing with guys who are extremely talented, yet who are older. Yeah, not only did Max struggle with the uh pitch clock and, and, and working fast, but so did uh, Carlos Carrasco in his start. He took a couple of violations himself. It kind of kind of took him off his game, I think. And, you know, he struggled throughout his entire start. He didn't make it past the fifth inning either. But my concern with this staff is that they're not giving the proper length and are, you know, starting to tax the bullpen, beat only seven games. Uh, but they cannot have a long spurt of this time during the season. They're going to need length. I know they're a lot older with, you know, Carrasco and Verlander and Scherzer, but they're going to have to help out, especially with the younger guys and David Peterson and Tyler McGill just starting to get, you know, more time in this rotation. We saw David Peterson had a good first start, kind of struggled in the second start. So this 
group, I feel that there is a concern with this that these guys can get tired and, and just get overworked. It, it really seemed like that, you know, through the first seven games. Yeah, I don't think that concern is misplaced. I think it's something to be uh, monitoring as we go forward. I think it'll probably get better there. Uh, the Mets certainly hope that it would, right? Um, but I think this kind of also points to the idea that, you know, maybe this team could use somebody in that Trevor Williams role from last year, right? Where, you know, they had somebody who could throw three, four innings in a pinch, um, come back in a few days, give you a spot start, whatever was needed. He basically provided, I mean, he did it really well. And, uh, you know, it's hard to do that consecutive years. So, I mean, the guy wanted to start games as well. He, had, he earned that right. Um, some team thought so, too. So they, thought, they ended up signing him to do just that. Um, so I don't necessarily look at that as, oh, man, they should have signed him. Um, sure, it would have helped. Uh, they did get some guys who possibly could fit that role, um, but we don't know. Um, but I do think that maybe down the road, shortly here, they do turn to one of those guys and kind of give them that option. And maybe the bullpen composition gets tweaked and changed a little bit as we see. Um, you know, how the season plays out. Uh, they kind of knew going into the season that this would be a little bit rough to navigate. It could have been even worse with the rain out, um, basically helping things. It gives them a fresh day when they really needed it. So they knew that they were going to play a lot of games in a row compared to other teams right out of the gate because no matter what, they were going to play with Milwaukee and Miami playing in domes. So they knew that for sure that they were going to play X amount of games in a row. So they weren't necessarily caught off guard, but it's just the idea of the amount of injuries that they also face while dealing with that kind of put them in this weird situation where they have so many guys on the IL, so many guys who um, they have to make decisions on, uh, or they had to make decisions on whether it was the 15 day IL or the 60 day and you know where that leaves their roster and the choices that they have to make. And we saw a couple of, we're going to see, uh, we saw one waiver claim, we may see another one down, down the road coming up soon too. And, and I would expect that to continue to occur um, when they find somebody that they like, as opposed to necessarily like a trade or anything like that for the bullpen. Because again, it just goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's kind of too early for that, as much as the Mets would want that not to be the case. That's, that's the reality that they live in there. Yeah, the waiver claim you speak of, it was uh, Edwin Yusita from Pittsburgh. He got option to trade. Triple A. Yeah, that was a tough pill to swallow losing Trevor Williams. But like you said, he wanted to start. Couldn't do anything really about that. Uh, I know they brought in um, Eliza Hernandez, who I think he's now on the IL in Triple I think he's hurt as well. Uh, Joey Lucchese, I don't know if we're going to see him again soon. Uh, he's still working his way back from the Tommy John surgery. So they really could use a definite long man to help out there. I know they gave a couple of innings to Tommy Hunter, and you know they did it with uh, Steven Nagosik. So we'll see where that goes moving forward. Well, before I let you go, I kind of want to get into the Kodai Senga's debut. Uh, he won his start against the Marlins in Miami, uh, had eight strikeouts all on the ghost fork ball. What did you think of his start? And uh, what did you think? First, what did you think of his start? And then also, what was more impressive? The way he struck out those eight batters or how he was able to navigate through that very tough first inning? Because I'm pretty sure he was nervous through that whole time. Yeah, for me, it was the bounce back because that's a hard thing, right? You're you're thinking about this and you got to put yourself in his shoes. It's not just even 
somebody's first start of the season. It's not somebody just getting called up to the majors. I mean, this guy worked so hard to get to this level and to be able to be in this situation where he's starting a major league baseball game. He was a developmental player in Japan. So what that means is he was beneath even the minor league system in Japan. So the chance of him even pitching a professional game at NPB was very low. Like that, for him to be a stud in Japan says a lot about who he is, let alone getting the opportunity to pitch in the major, the major league baseball. So the likelihood of it him ever having a, a solid career in Japan was always his back was against the wall there. And then to, to be able to pitch in the major leagues, he was the first developmental player from Japan to ever even do that. Um, so you have all that working in his mind, I'm sure, where he's had times in spring training where he reflected on his journey and said to himself, like, wow, I'm doing this. You add all the other factors of the variable, the variables that he faced, language barrier, new opponents, new teammates, new mound, new baseball, different strike zone even. Uh, uh, there's so many different little intricacies of the game that are different um, that we don't even think about um, or that we wouldn't even think about. So, yeah, for him to uh, persevere after some initial struggles, that says a lot about his character, for me at least. And that to me is like what you can point to and say, OK, this is why they liked him. And this is why they, uh, aside from the stuff, because that's obvious, but this is why they, they believe that he can make this transition. Because it's one thing to have the stuff, but you have to also have something about you that you're going to be able to withstand some punches and to overcome some challenges thrown your way. And the Mets obviously believe that he was of, of the mind that was able to do that. So that was, for the Mets perspective, uh, comforting to see. And then the stuff, I knew right away when they were recruiting him, when they were looking at him, evaluating him, he was very good. Um, it's just a question of his command. And sometimes in Japan, he had a um, he was kind of prone to these outings, what, a little bit like we saw early on, where he'd rack up a high pitch count, and sometimes it just would it would just miss those some of those pitches. Sure, he had some that um, were wide misses, and he had that one. I think it was the first uh, ghost fork that he ever threw, skip past Nito or whoever, um, and just. It, he, he has those doubts of command where he has to rein himself in. Um, you know, for me, I, I think there's going to be some times where we'll see that unfold and, and maybe he won't be able to overcome it. And maybe he'll have a, a shorter outing or two. Um, but then there will be games where it'll be like no hit stuff uh, and it'll be tremendous. And I, I think that uh, for right now, while he's still going through these challenges and, and getting accustomed to things and getting used to things, we're going to see probably both ends of that spectrum probably a little bit more than what Mets fans want to, but that's just my guess. Um, but on the other side of that, you have somebody who has pretty damn good stuff and who's going to get by um, with an array of pitches that are going to make life very difficult for a hitter in that box because you're not really sure what's coming. And then when the ball gets delivered, it, it's pretty nasty pitches. I'm just impressed by how much of a, a fan favorite he's just becoming in the clubhouse and with his teammates. I mean, you even saw him during the game, after a big out catch by Marte or even Lindor, he's waiting for them as before he gets into the to the uh, the dugout and you know waiting for them to congratulate them on the catch. And I, I just really like what he's bringing, not just on the field but off the field as well. He seems like a likable personality, and sometimes that can be very hard to come through when there is a language barrier. I mean, I put myself in his shoes and I think like even if I, I'm somebody that um, can speak a little bit of Spanish here and there, but if I was placed in a country that's the dominant language or a city that's the dominant language, I would have a hard time communicating and I would have a hard time showing my personality and who I am. This guy's doing that with 
while also trying to learn English, while also trying to learn his teammates. And there's some pressures there. There's some challenges there, but he's doing it. And I think it comes from a genuine place from what I've observed. I don't claim to know the person very well, um, just in my limited interactions with him. Um, you get the uh, vibe that it does come from a genuine place. And I think when you're presenting yourself in an authentic way, that resonates with people. And I think that's what we're seeing with his teammates, where they're giving him a lot of credit for what he's doing right now and the what he sacrificed and what he's trying to do. And I think they all relate to that as professional athletes of wanting to compete um, against the very best you possibly can and putting yourself out there. And so I think he has earned some people's respect just with that. And then just his personality, he, he's presented himself as somebody who um, certainly is very serious about his craft, but also um, can throw in a joke and who has a sense of humor. And I think that also makes it fun to be around as well, regardless of a language barrier or not. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time. Let everyone know what you're working on and where they could find you on social media. Sure. Thanks for having me, Anthony. I appreciate it. Um, Tim Britton and I covered the match for The Athletic. Um, so we're at theathletic.com. That's where you can find all of our articles on the Met. Uh, right now, we'll probably be loading up on some Alvarez content since he's uh, primed to be called up uh, soon. Uh, based on our understanding, uh, we'll both be there throughout the homestand. And then we'll be on the road on the West Coast as well. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Will Salmon, W-I-L-L. S-A-M-M-O-N. And thanks again for having me, Anthony. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a great time having you on. Maybe I'll see you out there Saturday. I'll be at that game. And I think Kodai Sango will be pitching. So that would be a, a nice little way to start uh, going to the games this season for myself. Uh, will, awesome having you on again. And I hope to have you on again soon. Yeah, anytime, Anthony. Thanks for having right. me again. That was Will Salmon. He covers the Mets for The Athletic. Before we wrap up the show, Mets Marized dot com well on twitter on metsmerized online they posted that the mets have a patch sponsorship with the new york presbyterian the mets will start wearing the patches for their home opener we know that there's been a lot of this sponsorship a lot of talk with the patches and this is i i like this one a lot i think this was a great job by the mets the fans who deliver their babies at New York Presbyterian Hospitals will also be treated to a Mets onesie celebrating their fandom from day one. And also, the Mets and New York Presbyterian will collaborate both at the ballpark and in the community to host health events and wellness events, including cancer screenings and blood drives. That was from Michael Mayer to add on to the Mets Marized Online tweet. So yeah, this is awesome for the Mets. I'm very excited that they're doing this. And if you're going to do the whole sponsorship with the patches, this is the best way you can do it. And there's it's not just the, the patch. There's more to this as they will be helping out with the community as well. And the Mets have done a great job with the Coens as well in reaching out to the community and helping out the community. We're going to wrap up the show right here. Awesome having Will Salmon on. We're going to do that again with him. You can follow Subway to Shea on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Subway to Shea. At Subway to Shea. You can see that below on the ticker right down there. I got that new ticker. I hope you guys like that. Listen and subscribe to the Subway to Shea podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And now, because if you're watching this, you're definitely watching it on YouTube. So subscribe on YouTube as well. I will also have exclusive content on the YouTube page that you can't get on the podcast. So be on the lookout for that. 
There'll be some clips from the podcast episodes, and there'll be exclusive interviews like I did with Matt Williams and talking about fantasy baseball. There'll be more of that to come. Turn on your notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. You can rate the show and leave comments for me to review. Don't forget to follow my work for Rising Apple. Rising Apple is a New York Mets site on the fan side of network. You can read my articles by going to risingapple.com. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter at Rising Apple Blog and the fan sided network at Fan Sided. If you have enjoyed watching this on YouTube, please leave a like and leave me comments. I want to hear from you and make sure to hit that subscribe button, like I mentioned earlier, so you can get all the notifications and updates from this channel. I can't thank you all enough for joining me today and for tuning in. For Anthony Rivera, you've been watching or listening to Subway to Shea.